Hi, and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. It's been an important and fateful week in the Middle East as we record the future of one of the most dominant leaders in the region, Turkey's Recep Erdogan, hangs in the balance following Sunday's elections as he's headed for a runoff after a dramatically close result. Later in the podcast, we'll talk to Haaretz Editor-in-Chief Esther Solomon and our correspondent in Istanbul, Simon Waldman, where they've watched the election play out. They'll tell us what happened, what's expected to happen, and what it means for Israel. On this side of things, five days and nights of armed conflict between Israel and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad ended at 10 p.m. Saturday night with a ceasefire. All told, Israeli strikes killed 33 Palestinians and wounded 147, while Islamic Jihad rockets killed two people in Israel, an Israeli woman and a Palestinian worker from Gaza, and wounded eight people. My first guest on the podcast is veteran journalist Barak Ravid. He writes on Israel and the Middle East for Axios, a U.S. outlet, and in here in Israel is a diplomatic correspondent for Wala News. Welcome, Barak, and let's acknowledge that you really learned everything you know in your long and distinguished stint as diplomatic correspondent here at Haaretz over 10 years. Hi, Alison. I totally agree. This is the best journalism school in the country and maybe in the world, and it's really great to be back here. Well, now that we've hyped Haaretz, we'll move towards your book. Um, Barack is here with his newly published book in English called Trump's Peace, The Abraham Accords and the Reshaping of the Middle East. It's a translation of the book that came out in Hebrew in 2021 with added chapters updating what the Biden White House has done with the Accords and what's happened since the events in the first edition in Hebrew. Before we dive into the book, though, let's just take a look at the headlines, given that you are a veteran diplomatic eye on the situation. Over the years, you must have covered more negotiations of ceasefires after armed exchanges with Gaza. How many times? Can you count them on your hands? <laughs> yeah, too many. So explain for us the way that these ceasefires play out. And as you saw it, how is this one different from the others? From what I've seen from my non-diplomatic correspondent point of view, it feels like the U.S. profile in these matters has gone from very high. Immediately, once fire breaks out, you'd have a senior U.S. diplomatic person parachuting in to solve the problem. And it seems like there's some sort of outsourcing of duties to Egypt. And it's now viewed as a local problem with minimal American interference, less involvement from Europeans, from anybody outside the region. Is that just something that appears to be or has there been a real shift in who the power brokers are when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Well, first, when it comes to the Gaza conflict in general, uh, you know, and I'm sure you felt the same, it's Groundhog Day. From the first moment the escalation started to uh, the last moment uh, when there was a ceasefire, everything in between, I think, was all too familiar to everybody. And we could... Uh, from the beginning, already say, all right, that's what's going to happen tomorrow, that's what's going to happen two days from now, three days from now, and that's how the ceasefire will develop. And I think, more or less, it was the case, which just shows you how futile the whole thing is when all the sides know already what's going to happen, each side knows its role, and each side knows that at the end of it, we'll just go back to square one with no real change in Gaza. About the uh, the Biden administration, I think it's it's an accurate description. And um, the Biden administration's policy on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict 
And I think that as a whole in the Middle East was containment. And what Biden wants is peace and quiet in the Middle East. And don't bother me while I deal with China and while I try to uh, help uh, Ukraine win the war with Russia. And also I think that what Biden learned in the previous uh, war in Gaza in May 2021, several months after he assumed office, was how critical the Egyptian role is. Because I think when Biden came in, Egypt was one of those countries that he said, oh, I'm going to show him, uh, you know, about human rights and democracy and their bad behavior. Uh, and I think that he realized back then in May 2021 that things are more complicated, that he needs the Egyptians. And since then, I think that for the U.S., for the Biden administration, uh, Egypt has been instrumental in trying to keep the calm in Gaza. And I think we saw it this time, too. What I think might have gone unnoticed was that this was true for the first three days of the of this the latest round uh, of violence but at a certain point I think towards Friday afternoon the US ambassador here Tom Knight started sounding the alarm bells to Washington telling them listen we might have a problem here because we can get a ceasefire and we can't get a ceasefire even though Israel and I guess um, a lot of people within the in Gaza also wanted to ceasefire but they couldn't get it one of the reasons they couldn't get it is because there was nobody to talk to on the other side because Israel just killed everybody in uh, you know all the leadership of the, of the Islamic jihad and then uh, we found ourselves uh, negotiating with people who sit in Beirut taking orders from Iran uh, well you know I don't know if taking orders but definitely under a lot of influence. Uh, from Iran and they're not on the ground so they don't you know they don't hear the uh, the airstrikes themselves they just watch it on on Al Jazeera uh, from their comfortable houses in in Beirut uh, and I think that then on Friday the White House started weighing in and we saw on Friday how um, uh, Wendy Sherman the Deputy Secretary of State calling the Minister for Strategic Affairs Ron Dermer and basically telling him, You know it's time to wrap it up um, it took another 24 hours uh, a bit more than 24 hours to get the ceasefire done but I think that in the last day the US was much more involved than in the first four days it's interesting I mean it's technically not related but it brings the judicial reform protest to mind because there's a lot of speculation that despite the fact that you know you've got all of these uh, hundreds of thousands of people in the streets and there's huge political pressure on Netanyahu what's really really holding him back and making him stay on that pause button is the Americans no doubt and by the way with the judicial reform at first when this thing was just floated in early January the White House wanted to stay out of it They, they said you know it's it's you know we don't want this this headache we don't want to to tackle this problem uh, ourselves you know let's just watch from the sidelines and it took like a week or two weeks later that they realized that it's their business too mm -hmm. uh, because it influences the whole relationship with Israel if this uh, you know plan to to kill the Supreme Court goes forward and they got started getting phone calls from the their constituents in the US and I think that almost every Jewish member of Congress that you'll go to today will tell you that this was the number one issue that his constituents talked to him about in the first four months of this 
new Israeli government. So your book in 2021 made massive headlines when it came out for pretty much destroying the image of the Trump-Bibi Netanyahu bromance, revealing exactly how angry Trump was over the fact that Netanyahu was one of the first people to congratulate Joe Biden on his presidential win over Trump, um, that he famously said in your interview about Bibi, fuck him, and that the two hadn't spoken since, that they hadn't spoken between the election and your interview. You mentioned recently that they haven't spoken even since then up until this day. Your sources are good on this? Yes, this is amazing. If I told you in September 2020 that uh, Netanyahu and Trump wouldn't speak for more than two years, you would think I'm crazy. And if I told you that Trump thought that it was Bibi's fault that uh, he couldn't uh, uh, deliver uh, a peace deal between Israel and Palestinians, you would say that I'm crazy. So at the end of the day, as amazing as it may sound, Donald Trump ended his presidency thinking about Netanyahu, the same stuff that President Obama and President Clinton thought about Netanyahu. And there was real substance behind this. This wasn't just an issue of, oh, he said this public thing about congratulating Biden. You said that by the end of his presidency that Trump came to the conclusion that Bibi wasn't serious about peace with the Palestinians, A, and that he had sort of played him uh, when it came to Iran. Can you just, you know, in a nutshell, tell us what was the narrative of how Trump came to these conclusions about Netanyahu? There was one quote that Trump told me that I think just summarizes the whole thing. And he said... You know, Bibi never wanted peace. He just tapped us along. Tap, 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 end quote. And I think that was the the, the deal here. And when Trump, Trump told me that he saw Netanyahu for the first time when he was president in February 2017, so literally like a month after he, he was sworn in. And he said that during the meeting, he told Netanyahu, look, I really want to make peace between Israel and the Palestinians. And he said Netanyahu started like mumbling and like, you know, saying, oh, you know. And he said, and at that moment, in that meeting, I told him right away, you don't really want a deal, do you? And I remember that afterwards there was a press conference in, you know, in the, in the East Room, in the White House. And you could see how Trump, he said at a cer- at, at certain point, something like, you know that you have to compromise, right, in front of the cameras. And Netanyahu was, you know, pretty sh- shaken i think by what happened because back then at that meeting also there was a rerun of the meeting first meeting between netanyahu and obama in 2009 at the white house because trump told netanyahu uh listen why don't you stop with the settlement thing for the next four years and netanyahu that's not something he thought he would hear from trump and he wasn't ready for it because it didn't come up in in the all the preparations he didn't know how to get out of it. And he said, well, you know, okay, let's talk about it. And later on, he managed to, with some of Trump's people, to get some sort of an understanding that allowed Israel to continue on building in the settlements. By the way, if you look at the entire Trump's presidency and the Biden presidency, there was less new building during Trump's time in office than during Biden's. And people in the Biden administration know that. And they know that Trump managed to contain this more than they did. 
So you interviewed Trump twice for your book, once in person and once um, on the phone. Everybody right now is buzzing about the recent CNN interview town hall with Trump and how Caitlin Collins approached him, etc. So just give us a little bit of a sense what it's like to sit in the room for 90 minutes interviewing uh, Donald Trump. Was he really quick to trash talk Bibi and elicit these quotes that made these headlines? Do you feel like you had to work at it? There's an undertone in your book of a grudging respect for Donald Trump, I have to say. So just, you know, if you can give me a little bit the subjective picture of what it was like to do this long interview in Mar-a-Lago with him. Look, I didn't know what to expect, right? Because we never met, you know, one-on-one. So I came in, you know, with this long list of questions. I think I don't know, more than 50 questions. And I didn't know how how much time I'm going to have. And then he came in. Uh, to the room in in the lobby in Mar-a-Lago, it was pouring rain outside, and we were the only ones there. It was a Sunday, so so the club is closed on Sunday, the Mar-a-Lago club. And we uh, we started sitting down. He said, "Well, you know, I heard you want to talk about uh, uh, the Abraham Accords. It's not a complicated issue. Five minutes will 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 get this done." And I said, "What do you mean five minutes? I have fifty questions. <laughs> <laughs> what am I gonna do?" Um, and then he started talking. Five minutes passed, and ten minutes passed, and fifteen minutes passed, and an hour passed, and an hour and a half passed. You have to remember, this was April 2021, three months after he was, you know, basically kicked out of the White House by the American public. And he was, back then, he was radioactive, you know, after January 6th and everything. Nobody wanted to get near him. And it was almost, you know, moving to see this person that just three months before was the strongest person in the world, sitting almost by himself and just wanting to talk to someone, okay? And again, I disagree with... 90% of what Donald Trump did in his presidency, but you couldn't not feel, you know, something for him at that point in time. And I ended up not using most of my questions because I didn't have to. He had a lot of stuff on his chest that he wanted to unpack, and he came ready. He came ready. Uh, He knew exactly what he wanted to talk about. And when he said about Bibi, fuck him... I didn't need to provoke him. Uh, I didn't need to like ask tough questions or anything because he had so much he wanted to say. And he said it at the end of this 20-minute monologue about all the bad things he thought about Netanyahu. And it was, again, he laid out a case. It wasn't like, you know, being all over the place saying this thing or that thing. He started with, the peace with the Palestinians moved to the issue of annexation and the Iranian issue, and at the end, Netanyahu congratulating Joe Biden. But it was like a, a real case that he laid out there. It was like, you know, you were watching this show for four years, and then you realized that everything you saw was just BS because the reality between those two was completely different. It's like you look behind the curtain, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And and you look behind the curtain with one of the actors that is giving you a tour of what happened behind the scenes. After he said what he said about Netanyahu, at that moment I just said, oh my God, I just need to get out of here. <laughs> because you don't want him to like uh, say, oh, you know, I didn't mean what I said. And, you know, after an hour and a half, he, he had to go. But then, two weeks later, I get a phone call from his spokesperson that said, the president wants to talk to you. 
And I said, oh my God, you know, it's just, you know, he wants to backtrack on everything and to walk back what he said. A week later, my, my phone rings and it's Donald J. Trump. And he started the conversation by um, imitating an Israeli accent in English. <laughs> and he said like something like, Shalom, um, uh, how are things in Israel? Um, and it was, it was just hilarious. And then I, th- I still thought that he was going to you know, walk back what he said. And then he just said, yeah, listen, there are a few things I forgot to tell you when we met. I want to say some more things about Iran. And at a certain point, he, st- he went back to, the, to complaining about Netanyahu congratulating Biden. And he said, and you know, some people were, were very unhappy with, with the way he, he handled this. I said, yeah, you told me that you were unhappy. He said, yeah, yeah, I was unhappy too. Yeah. And then he went on a, on a new rant about Netanyahu, uh, you know, again and again and again and again. But he didn't walk back what he said. And then, you know, the initial interview was in April. And the book came out eight months later. And I was sitting on this, you know, nuclear bomb for eight months. And every few months I got a call, like, from some of his people when, you know, when's the book published and when's the book published. And, and f- after the book was published and it made all those headlines, a, few, a week later, I think, was Christmas. So I asked one of his people who, who saw him on Christmas, okay, how, how's Donald? And he said, oh, it was great. How was Christmas Eve? He said, oh, it was amazing. We had a lot of fun. He said, did he say anything? He said, what do you mean? Nothing? What, what, do you, what does he need to say? No, you know about the, um, the fuck Bibi. And this person says, like, don't you get it? That he wanted to say it? That he was waiting for eight months for you to, like, publish the damn thing? And, you know, he, and he was just, like, happy that it was already out there. So I think that was, that was part of it. And, and I only realized it then, that it was, you know, he, he meant to say it. It wasn't like a slip of a tongue. Wow. Well, as fun as this part of the story is, maybe I should ask you about some substantive issues as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the themes of your very detailed book about the whole process of the building of the Abraham Accords is how little... Israel actually had to do with it. How much this was about the relationship between the United States and the Gulf states and the issue of diplomatic recognition of Israel was almost being used as a card, right, between the U.S. and the Gulf states, the UAE, Bahrain, etc. So I was surprised to hear you in another interview assert something, and you said that you believe that a possibility exists despite this unprecedented right-wing new Netanyahu government and despite the crisis over the judicial overhaul, uh, despite the frosty relationship between Israel and, uh, and Joe Biden at the moment, he still hasn't given an invitation to Netanyahu to the White House. You still think, you assert that there is a chance that we may see the United States broker a deal in which Saudi Arabia and Israel normalize relations, that this diplomatic prize could potentially be handed to uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. Definitely. Because one of the conclusions in my book is that the Abraham Accords wouldn't have happened if Trump wasn't the president. Why? First, because he managed to close the trust gap between the U.S. and the Gulf states that opened up during the uh, Obama administration uh, and the trust gap that was opened between Obama and Netanyahu. And again, regardless of what you think about Obama, about Netanyahu, about Trump, it's just factual, okay? He closed this trust gap. Another thing that he did is that he appointed the closest person to him to handle this thing, Jared Kushner, his son-in-law. And here in Israel and in the Gulf, 
people understood the message that this is something important to the president if he appoints like a member of his family to to deal with it and the third thing that he was ready to put his hand into his pocket take out tangible deliverables to those countries in order for them to take this leap and normalize with Israel arms deals etc arms deals recognition of Western Sahara aid package to Sudan you know you name it and I think that for the first two years of his presidency Joe Biden didn't want to do all that but since I think his trip to Saudi Arabia last July he started moving in that direction he started trying to close the trust gap with the Saudis the people he appointed on this okay one of them is Amos Hoxstein who's like one of his closest advisors who's working with him for years who I call Biden's Jared Kushner uh, he put him on this on the Saudi file together with Brett McGurk the Middle East uh, coordinator at the White House and And he starts to consider putting his hands in his pocket and taking out deliverables for the Saudis in order to allow U.S.-Saudi normalization as a tool for Israel-Saudi normalization. Trump was a rule breaker, and so therefore, you know, he was someone who could conceive of and execute what was considered impossible, which was rapprochement with Gulf states, with Arab states, while bypassing the Palestinian issue. But he's a Republican. The question is, because he blazed that trail, even as a Democrat, could Joe Biden get away with doing the same thing? If he wants to, he can. It's a, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a question of uh, leadership, you know? If he wants to do it, he can do it. I think, obviously, Republicans will support it. And I think that at least half of Democrats in Congress will support it. Uh, and I think that even if there'll be some criticism at the beginning, what it's going to do in the region here is, uh, you know, just this domino effect of more and more countries uh, normalizing relations with Israel that I think At the end of the day, it will be worth it for him. And putting on your BB watcher hat, you think that BB might prioritize this diplomatic legacy over political survival by hanging on to the far-right factions in his government that will never go along with this and change his approach in order to uh, to get that prize of that that's, that's the million dollar question. In, in the Abraham Accords, and again, one of the things that I think the main discoveries in the book was that on August 12, 2020, 24 hours before the Abraham Accords were announced, Netanyahu wanted to, to back off from the whole thing because of political considerations here. He wanted to go for an early election, and he said, if I'm going for an early election, I cannot uh, give up on the annexation of parts of the West Bank because for my base it's important, so I can't do it. And he wanted out. 24 hours before, uh, the person who uh, basically told him It's too late, you have to do it. It's David Friedman, who was the U.S. ambassador here. He was the one who called him and just shouted at him, that's it, we're doing this, uh, you can't go back. It was like he was dragged into it almost. You know, one of Netanyahu's aides told me that several weeks after the Abraham Accords were signed on the White House lawn, he was sitting with his advisors and he was literally telling them maybe it was a mistake. I think that he will be at the same decision point now because obviously this thing cannot fly With this government Be- even though it's not important for the Saudis it's obviously not important for Bibi and it's obviously not really important for Biden although he needs it as a cover 
there have to be some Palestinian component in this deal. And if there's a Palestinian component, this government cannot deliver on it, as small as it might be. So he will have to make decisions that might uh, take his uh, coalition apart and he might need to um, go to Yair Lapid and Benny Gantz and tell them, listen, there's going to be a peace agreement with Saudi Arabia. I need you in the government. And I have to say, they will be in a you know big dilemma what to do. Uh, so I think that sometime in the next six months, we can find ourselves in the same situation Netanyahu was in the summer of uh, 2020. Even though they don't speak to each other, it feels like Bibi and Trump are in some sort of, you know, dialogue or in some kind of parallel universe. They have so many elements of their leadership experiences in common. People talk about what Netanyahu used to be like and what he's like today. From what I see, a lot of the boldness and brashness of Trump kind of woke Netanyahu up to, wow, you can get away with this. You can, you know, do what you want. And if you've got enough support and strong enough base, you can do this. And then on the other side, now, when Bibi just made his big political comeback, the first thing I thought was, boy, Trump must be really inspired by this because you can be on trial for criminal charges and you can get reelected and you can come back. I agree with 95% of what you said. The 5% is that, in a way, I think that Bibi was there first. Meaning, a lot of the things that Trump did during the 2016 campaign are things that Bibi did in the 2015 campaign. They are very similar political animals. Uh, The way they campaign is very similar. They're both basing their support, not on the party, but on their personality, on themselves individually, they turn their parties to, not to a party, but to a... Cult? It could be a cult. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. If you go today in the Likud and in the GOP, in the Republican Party, you find very similar phenomenons, including, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, okay? I can think about at least three lawmakers from Likud that are the Israeli version of Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? Maybe more than three. So it's very similar. The phenomena are very, very similar. So I don't love it when people ask me to predict the future, but in an imaginary world where Trump is elected in 2024, presumably thanks to another big push by the evangelicals who really love Israel, and Netanyahu remains prime minister, the two of them get another bite at the apple. The first time around, we saw so many things happen, right? The moving of the embassy, the canceling of the Iran deal, the Abraham Accords, obviously. If it happens again, how do you imagine that relationship playing out and in what do you think it could result? I think that if, you know, if we get closer to to the presidential election and Trump is the nominee, I think he will be the nominee. Netanyahu will find some way to patch things up. You know, he'll come, they'll meet, he'll kiss the ring, everything will be good again. If Trump wins and becomes president again, I think it will be more complicated than the first time around. First, because Trump already knows the client. No re-election, nothing to lose. No re-election. And, you know, Trump, when he got his mindset on something, you're not going to change his mind. And right now, BB is in the category of people that... He has a lot of bad things that he thinks about them, okay? And that's not going to change. So I think it will be much more difficult uh, uh, for Netanyahu this time around if Trump 
uh, makes a comeback. But Trump is very interested in this region and what's going on here and in trying to, you know, continue the legacy of the Abraham Accords. And by the way, I wouldn't rule out that he'll try to, to you know, to give the Israeli-Palestinian thing another shot. Uh, I He doesn't give up. I, I, you know, he's still, you know, I asked him, why the hell are you interested in this issue? And he said, you know, it's one of those things that my father always talked to me about. And, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the most difficult deal in the world. Nobody got this deal. I want to get this deal. So I think he's, at his, he has his mindset. Again, I don't know what, you know, if he wins and what happens. It's, it's, as you said, impossible to predict. But this issue is an issue that he's very interested in. Barack Ravid, thank you so much. Good luck in Washington, where thank I'm sure also. things be much less eventful and calmer <laughs> than they are over here. As I understand, your book is independently published, and so the best way to find it is on Amazon? Yes, on Amazon. There's a Kindle uh, edition, an e-book, and a paperback. And I hope that everybody who listened to what we spoke in the last few minutes and was interested... Uh, would order the book because there are many, many, many more stories like that. There. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alison. And now we turn to Istanbul, Turkey, where results in the national elections show that neither presidential candidate received 50% of the popular vote needed to win, and so we are facing a second round. Joining me from Istanbul is Haaretz English Editor-in-Chief Esther Solomon and our correspondent there, Simon Waldman, along with his Turkish wife, Rivka Bihar Waldman, who can offer her special perspective on the election results. I'll start with you, Esther. Erdogan has been running the place for 21 years, and this was a real serious challenge to his rule. Tell us what Election Day felt like in Istanbul and what the atmosphere is in the aftermath of the news that there's going to be a runoff election in two weeks on May 28th. Hi, Alison. I'm always a little bit skeptical about any one person being able to encapsulate what the atmosphere of an entire city, let alone an entire country, uh, not least someone who flew in halfway through Election Day. Uh, but I can certainly say in comparison to my previous trips to Istanbul, including uh, during election periods, it was remarkably quiet. Both during Election Day, I saw many, many people walking to uh, the polls, which in fact was borne out. There was one of the most, the highest turnouts uh, in any election in Turkey's modern history. Uh, but after the results uh, started trickling in and people were glued to their TV sets, usually late at night there is one uh, camp that declares victory and therefore there are, you know, sadness or, or happiness depending on which side you're on. But there was just a kind of preternatural uh, quiet in the streets, partly because the results actually took uh, quite some time to uh, become apparent that there would be no outright victor, and partly because, at least uh, in the specific neighbourhood that I'm in, it's much more of a opposition uh, stronghold, and there was deep disappointment that uh, the opposition to Erdogan hadn't managed to uh, push over that 50% mark. Simon, you wrote that this was frustratingly anticlimactic. Can you tell us exactly what the results mean? Uh, it seems that Erdogan's party still will have a hold on the parliament no matter who becomes president after the runoff. 
Uh, well, it's anticlimactic for the opposition. For them, they saw this as a as a huge opportunity to, you know, for, from their perspective, to reclaim the country, uh, to ouster Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who, as you mentioned, has been at the helm of Turkish politics for 21 years. And uh, opinion polls in the run-up to the elections predicted that there will be an opposition victory. And there was this anticipation that this would happen. And uh, not only did it not happen, but Erdogan almost won this outright in the first round. This is perhaps the worst case scenario uh, that the opposition could have dreamed of. It's a hammer blow to the opposition. Um, and to make matters worse, um, from their perspective, is when you look at Parliament, um, Erdogan's party, the Justice and Development Party, the AKP, they didn't manage to get a majority by themselves. They got 35%, which is their worst election result since 2001, 2002. Um, but um, together with their coalition allies, they now passed the 50% stage, which means when presidential elections are rerun in two weeks, most voters who weren't sure whether they were going to vote Erdogan or the opposition will now, in most likelihood, vote for Erdogan uh, because they will see that as a stable choice um, as, as president. So this is a huge blow to the opposition. So the chances of Erdogan truly winning the second time around are expected to be high because of who people who voted for that third candidate are going to fall to, they'll fall to him. So yeah, so the third candidate um, won around 5% of the votes and this is an ultra nationalist. Um, and within the opposition, you know, it, I call it a, 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 the closest thing Turkey has had to a rainbow alliance um, in that they were seeking to appeal to, uh, to some conservative voters, uh, to some nationalist voters, to progressives, to to Democrats, to liberals, to those on uh, on the to to some extent on the socialist left, and also uh, Kurdish voters as well. Um, but with an ultra nationalist now out of the race, his voter camp uh, are more likely to vote for Erdogan, um, and so that would no doubt push him past the 50% mark. Now, of course, the opposition um, and activists, they, you know, they're, they're saying things along the lines of, we must remain hopeful, we can still do this. But I think deep in their hearts, uh, they know that they, they have their work cut out in, in two weeks' time. Esther, some commentators here have been making comparisons between the Turkish opposition uh, and their leader um, to the Naftali Bennett, Yair Lapid coalition of change in that all of these people agree that it's time for Erdogan to go, just like in Israel, people believed it was time for Netanyahu to go. But it's such a big and diverse conglomerate of anti-Erdogan factions that it's hard for them to really hold themselves together. Uh, this indeed is... Uh, a critical question for the opposition here in Turkey, just as much as uh, it was during the establishment of the Israeli government of change. Both of them have this overwhelming uh, aim, which is to knock out uh, the serving um, prime minister or president, depending on where you're, where you're, where you're standing, which country. Uh, and both have put together extremely heterogeneous uh, coalitions to do that, uh, that are kept together with this one aim. Now, uh, we know that in Israel that managed to hold itself 
together for a year and a half and then it disintegrated again here as simon mentioned you also have people that just are not natural bedfellows uh, you have uh, islamists and secular nationalists and everything that is in between which in some ways also reflects some of the spectrum of uh, political positions that were in the Bennett Lapid government, but in Israeli terms. So if they don't succeed in pushing Erdogan out, and then they're facing uh, another considerable period in opposition, it is going to be a great challenge to see if they manage to sustain the, any kind of cohesiveness over that time. Simon and Rivka, if you'd like to join into answering this question, can you explain why Erdogan, who had such a stronghold on power, feels so much weaker this time around? What factors led to the power slipping away from him that he may, it seems, manage to hang on to, but uh, he's a much, much weaker figure than he was? And whether or not the leader running against him for president, Kamal Kulij Darolo, is the right man to challenge and topple a figure like Erdogan? Um, I, I think that's the question that the opposition really need to consider. Was it a case that they ran a bad campaign or did they just have the wrong uh, the wrong candidate for the position? Uh, my leaning is they had the wrong candidate. Um, Khalid Daulu is not a new figure in Turkish politics. He's headed the party for 10 years now. And there were just other candidates who were more electable. There was Imamolu, there was uh, Mansour Yavash, and they were his running mates to his ideological left and to his ideological right. So we had really basically three candidates who were kind of put to the front to challenge Erdogan. This isn't a country which is used to, uh, unfortunately, I think, strong men candidates to run into politics. And so you had this group of three against Erdogan. And I don't think that was the best idea. At the same time, it is arguable. And I accept the point that it, you probably wouldn't have had this, this rainbow coalition, if that's the right word for it, uh, behind just one of these candidates. Um, and what Khalid Darulu was, was successful in doing was bringing this kind of diverse group together. And perhaps only he could have done that. So it's a hard one to tell. Um, but I, I, you know, my my first impression is, you know, this is an individual who is um, who is not a populist figure. He has a bureaucratic background, um, not quite as exciting as the other candidates, potential candidates, um, and uh, he just wasn't the right person to challenge a figure as as big as Erdogan. Rivka, you grew up in the Turkish Jewish community. How did Turkish Jews view this election? Did they see anything differently from their Muslim neighbors? From the liberal or secular Muslim neighbors, we don't see it any different. So we're on board with that group of Muslims, let's call it. If the country is polarized, we definitely take part, take part in the secular part. But it's a shame when you said Erdogan seems like a weak figure. I... I quite don't agree with it, to be honest with you, because 49.4 is not a true defeat, is it? And we had hoped that it would be a different result. It would be a lesser percentage on, on his behalf, but it, it just didn't happen. So I'm a little bit uh, disappointed, actually very, very disappointed at the moment and very upset. <laughs> 
to be honest with you. And during this these 20 years of time, especially after the Gezi incidents, 2013, and after the intended coup, 2016, most of my Jewish Turkish friends and foreign friends alike, they, they've moved abroad. So that's where the Jewish community stands more or less. Like they're here if they can, but the young people, uh, families with young kids, they're just going wherever they can. And it's a hit on the community. Obviously it's a hit on the country. It's a hit on the community. So there was a hope that if perhaps the presidency changed hands that some of these people would return. No, they would not return because it would take a lot of years to fix what has been destroyed from our perspective in the last 20 years. Simon and Esther, how do the experts you've spoken to see this election when it comes to Israel? Uh, Ahead of the campaign, we saw Erdogan making some very conciliatory steps towards uh, Israel after a period of frozen relations, almost hostile relations at times. How do we expect it will uh, look uh, going forward one way or the other if either of these two candidates win, uh, particularly if uh, Erdogan, who's now favored in the second round, wins? I think that Erdogan has always played a quite clever double game, really. He has provided the red meat to his supporters and to generally to Turkish grassroots public opinion, which is very pro-Palestinian. And his rhetoric has been uh, very uh, pro-Palestinian and often objectionable to Israeli ears. But he has, apart from the period of freezing um, diplomatic representation, Diplomatic relations and certainly uh, economic ties were never um, actually severed. And in fact, they have been growing year on year, even during the periods where uh, Erdogan would get up at a rally and rail against uh, Israel and all who support it. So uh, there doesn't seem to be any particular reason um, for that to change. And that really is a sign of you know, an important pragmatic uh, side of uh, his foreign relations. And also the opposition candidate, Kalich Dorolu, also put out feelers in the last few days saying to Israel, you know, obviously in the his hoping, in the ex- expectation he might win, that Israel shouldn't be worried that he isn't going to suddenly make some kind of uh, dramatic change uh, in that policy. Um, yeah, well, I agree with everything which has been said. The the only thing that I do doubt, I doubt the extent to which Erdogan himself is a strategic thinker. Um, I, I don't think that he has this kind of worldview where he strategizes what Turkey's policies towards Israel should be on a strategic basis based on geopolitics and all of those kind of things. And sometimes, you know, academics such as myself, we kind of, we, we project those ideas onto Erdogan and that's not necessarily true. What Erdogan certainly wants is for Turkey to be a world influencer, let's say, um, to have a say in what happens on global events. And it doesn't necessarily mean that Turkey is on the winning side, for example, of a of a conflict in, uh, in in close to Israel, like in Syria, but just to have a say 
and um, he would do anything to to have that kind of uh, uh, forum to be to be in the center of the world stage. Um, and on occasion, that could mean railing against Israel for for you know policies towards the Palestinians. On other occasions, uh, he may just think that that's just not a good idea. But he's not strategic in terms of his his outlook in in that regard. Um, it's it's very much um, does this put Turkey on the map internationally if. I say a certain uh, thing about Israel. When it comes to economic relations, I, I, I expect it to continue to prosper. Um, and let's, I, in terms of a, kind of a, a general global outlook, there was no reason to think that the opposition would have been any pro-Western than uh, than Erdogan and the AKP. Um, if you look at some of the statements that were coming out from the opposition. Um, they were known, not necessarily more friendly to the United States, for example. That was very muted, in fact. Um, so, you know, when it comes to foreign policy, I think Erdogan has his finger on the pulse of a significant amount of, 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 of Turkish voters, actually. I suppose what I would say, you know, as a as a visitor to to a story that is going it is ongoing and as an observer of Turkish a keen uh, but amateur observer of Turkish politics for for many years I think that there are enormous expectations uh, especially from the liberal democratic camp around the world for these elections in Turkey and obviously enormous international media attention um, as well for Israel's pro-democracy movement, it was also particularly interesting because of the analogies that have been made uh, in terms of uh, democratic decline, both in Turkey and in Israel, and obviously Turkey being a near neighbour. And there will now be a difficult period of introspection and, and thought about, you know, what are the real lessons to be taken from uh, what has happened here in terms of how to build a resilient opposition to would-be uh, autocrats. Esther, Simon, Rivka, thanks so much for joining me from Istanbul. And uh, Simon, good luck with two more weeks of covering an election. Uh, you don't get a rest yet. Thanks very much. Thank, Thank you. you. And that wraps things up for this edition of Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guests and to my editor and producer, Nara Malkin. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>